in your Bible, Luke chapter number 5, if you will take it, please. Luke chapter number 5. I began the reading of God's Word today from verse 17, Luke 5 and 17. It came to pass on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by which were come out of every town of Galilee and Judea and Samaria, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. And behold, men brought in a man which was taken with a palsy or a paralysis, and they sought means to bring him in and to lay him before them. And when they could not find by what way they might bring him in, because of the multitude, they went upon the housetop, and they let him down through the tiling with his couch into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said unto him, Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this which speaketh blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answering said unto them, What reason ye in your hearts? Whether it is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Rise up and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power upon earth to forgive sins. He said unto the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, and take up thy couch, and go into thy house. And immediately he rose up before them, and he took up that whereon he lay, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed. And they glorified God and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. And thank you, and you may be seated. Well, the message this morning is getting people to Jesus, getting people to Jesus. It's a simple story, a familiar story, a little narrative that any, even a child could understand. Jesus Christ is teaching here in Capernaum, and we believe he was in the house of Simon Peter. Peter lived in Capernaum, we know, there on the Lake of Galilee. And uh, the scholars believe that this was in Peter's house. Jesus' fame had spread all over the region, and the place was absolutely packed. People had just pushed together, and there was no room anywhere left in the house. In the crowd was a number of Pharisees, of scribes, of doctors of the law, and uh, they were sitting there to be critics of the Lord Jesus Christ. They had heard about this young uh, preacher from Nazareth, this young Galilean preacher, and they were coming to check him out. They weren't there particularly as friends. They were skeptics of the young preacher. And the Bible says if you compare the accounts in Mark chapter 2 and verse number 2, it talks about Jesus was there, and he was preaching the Word. I think that's so important in the day in which we live. I hope that you understand that our church is somewhat distinct, and that is that we have made a stand, and we promote it 
constantly that the primary reason we come to church is because of the Word of God. It's the teaching and preaching of the Word of God. We live in a day when so many churches have emphasized performance. They've em- now, in many churches, the music lasts longer than the sermon lasts. In many churches, the idea of any kind of public prayer of consequence is taken away because people want to be entertained. They want to be stimulated. I can never do any better than to do what the Lord Jesus Christ did. I can never improve on his example. And what did he do when he had a crowd of people packed in around him? He preached the Word of God, Mark chapter 2, verse number 2. Now, let me tell you a little bit about the scene there that day that you probably wouldn't pick up just reading the account from the Bible. Middle Eastern houses, for the most part in that day, and they built quite nice houses too, by the way. Don't think that this was a primitive society. And in that day, though, the houses were made of mud blocks and stuccoed over like, or like serve in many countries even today. The houses were built just one room in a rectangle-sized uh, room, and they were built in a square. You connect all the, the rooms together, and you create a square. And inside the square, in the middle of the square, was a courtyard they like to sit outside. Their weather is extremely mild in uh, parts of Palestine, especially up there in the mountains of the Galilee. And so they would like to sit out in the middle of the house with the open sky over them. It doesn't rain much there. And so they built their houses with a little open courtyard in the middle. Then on the outside, they would build a staircase ascending up the wall of the house and the roofs were all flat. They didn't have any arched roof like we have. So the people would go up the outside staircase, and they would sit on the roof oftentimes in the evening. For example, in Acts, you see Peter is on the roof there when the angel came to him and spoke to him about what he could eat, what was clean and unclean. You find accounts like that because it was the customary thing for the family to, their version of sitting on the porch, I guess, is what it would be. They would go up the staircase, and they would sit on the top of the roof. And so Jesus, on this particular day, is teaching. Maybe he was in the courtyard. Maybe he was in the largest room in the house. We don't know for sure. There are four men that live in Capernaum. And they have a friend, and the friend is paralyzed. The friend cannot walk a step. He can't do one thing to help himself. And these men care about their friend. They have a love, a compassion, a concern for him. And so he's bed fast. But they pick up his bed, and their beds were more like a cot, we would call it. And they carry him up to the house believing that if they can just get him in front of the Lord Jesus Christ, that Christ is going to heal him. So they get there, and they can't get to Jesus for the crowd. There's 10 or 15 or 20 people or something in between them and the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And uh, 
they get together, and I guess they talk about it for a few moments. Well, what are we going to do? We've got to get him to Jesus. And there's a little creativity here imagined by them, and so they say, well, let's just carry him up the staircase out there. Let's get him to the roof, and we'll let him down. And so they decided that was the plan, and they did that. And they tied a rope on each corner of the cot, and they got up there, moved some of the roof tiles around, which were kind of loose clay tiles that they used in those days, and they let the cot down. Jesus is sitting there teaching. People are compressed right up around him, and suddenly there's a little movement, and everybody in the room starts looking up. Wow, here's a cot uh, descending down. And they let him down right in front of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, with compassion in his voice and love in his heart for this man, says to him, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. The very first thing, first things first, huh? Always do the most important thing first. What was the most important thing? The greatest need this man had I want you to see, was not being able to walk again physically. The greatest need this man had was his spiritual need. Jesus Christ looked into his heart. Jesus could perceive that his greatest need was forgiveness of his sins. Jesus looked into his heart and saw his sins. Well, when Jesus said, your sins be forgiven you, man, that set off all those Pharisees and scribes and doctors of the law. I mean, they just went bonkers because for a man to say, I forgive you of your sins was the same as saying, I'm, I'm God. And they saw very quickly that Jesus was claiming deity. He was claiming that he had the power to forgive sins. And they consider that to be blasphemy. They say that here. This man, is blas- this man speaketh blasphemies, they say. I can hear them talking. Who does he think he is? <laughs> does he think he's God? Well, he's the son of Joseph and Mary from right over here 10 miles away. He grew up in Nazareth. This man isn't God, and he's claiming to be God. What a blasphemer. He ought to be stoned. He's broken the law. But in verse number 22, you read, but when Jesus knew their thoughts and Jesus Christ knew exactly what they were thinking, again, evidence that he, in fact, was God, and he had perfect knowledge of everything that was happening there in that room. In fact, he has perfect knowledge of everything that's happening anywhere. Don't let me run by that too quickly here. I want you to stop and think with me about that as we look at this little story. I want you to understand that Jesus Christ still has perfect knowledge of what we think. How in the world with 7 billion people on the planet could a preacher stand and tell a group of people today that Jesus Christ knows what every single person on this planet is thinking? Well, he couldn't do that if he weren't God. He couldn't do that if he were not infinite. I don't know, but that has been a guiding principle in my life. 
And if you're a serious Christian, I think it's a guiding principle in your life as well. Simply this, that everything that I'm thinking about, God knows what I'm thinking about. I have no secrets in my heart. I have no secrets that I am holding back and that God knows nothing about. God knows my thoughts. He knows the intentions, meaning the motivations of my heart. What motivates me to do what I'm doing? He knows right now what is motivating me as I stand before you. He knows the little secret nuances of everything that we say, what we mean, that other people may not even pick up on, but he knows. He knows the thoughts and intents of every human heart. He knows what you're thinking about right now, my friend. And so Jesus knew their thoughts. And because he did then, he said here to them, and so that you will know that I'm God, I have forgiven him of his sins, but you have ridiculed me and mocked me and scoffed at that. You think I'm a blasphemer. I'll prove to you that I'm God. I not only know what you're thinking, but Son, rise up and walk. You're healed. And Jesus immediately, instantaneously healed the man. And the Bible says he rose up from his bed and he folded up his little cot and he went back home and he glorified God on the way. A great little story, a wonderful story. And it has so much truth for you and me today. And so the rest of my message today, just observations and applications that I'd like to draw from that to help us in our Christian life. Number one, I have four points for you today. Number one, this man is a picture of every sinner. This man on this cot is a picture of every sinner in the Bible. Now, we know that in the Bible, we look at the Bible and we interpret it on what does that represent? How does that speak to me? This man speaks to us in that he's a picture of every single human being outside of Jesus Christ. The first thing I note about this man is he's absolutely helpless. He can't get to Jesus. He can't walk one step. He is absolutely helpless in and of himself in being able to get to the only one who can heal him and who can help him. He cannot do one thing to save himself. Now, I want to stop and drill down on that a minute. I want you to really grasp that. You see, there are two religions in the whole world, they say. One of them is spelled do something, do. And it means try to live a good life or get baptized, or join a church, or do good works of service, serve humanity, treat people like you want to be treated, live a good life, be a good neighbor, show love and compassion to your fellow man. And all of those are Christian virtues, and they're very, very important. But let me tell you, none of them will save you. And so much of the world, most of the world, even most of the professing Christian world today thinks they must do something in order to be saved. And the Bible says, no, no, no. It is not by works of righteousness which we are saved, but according to His mercy that He saves us. The Bible says, it is not 
Salvation is by grace through faith, not of yourself, not of works. This man could do zero, zilch, zip, nothing to save himself, and neither can you today, my friend. I just think that is so deeply ingrained in people's thinking. I have to do something. I know Jesus died on the cross for my sins, but but if I'm a Christian, don't I also have to know is the answer. No. Salvation is of the Lord. Four times in the Bible, salvation is of the Lord. And what that simply means is I can do nothing to add to what Christ has already accomplished for me on the cross. When he said it is finished, he meant it is finished. He meant that the price had been paid and nothing needed to be added. Now, if you really know the Lord Jesus Christ, he puts in your heart a desire to do good works and to live the right way and to treat people right and to serve him and all that. But Don't confuse that and ever conflate that with anything to do with salvation. Salvation is of the Lord. We can do nothing to add to it or to help him out in any way. Amen? That is the heart of the Christian gospel today. The good news is that we don't do it. He has already done it. Now, for the Christian or the unsaved person, it's difficult for unsaved people to see that they can do nothing to add to their salvation. And if you're here today and you're unsaved, or if you're watching on television or listening on the internet or whatever, and you don't have assurance of your salvation today, let me tell you, just trust in Christ. Just put your faith in Him. Cease trying to do something to help God out. He's already done what needed to be done at the cross. We devalue the cross. We we detract from the grace of God when we try to add anything to salvation. Now, to the Christian, though, you look at this same picture, I want you to see that there are people in your life like these four men had this man in their life. You have people in your life who are dependent upon you to get to Jesus. That's a pretty awesome thought when you consider it. There are people in my life that I'm going to encounter as I go through my life And those people are dependent upon me to get to Jesus. Now, I didn't say that those people helped in the salvation. Jesus healed the man without any help from these men. Jesus forgave the man of his sins, but the man never would have gotten to Jesus if it hadn't been for his friends. That's why I am pushing with all my might as a pastor to get you here for that Team 13-3 training because there are people in our lives that they are dependent on us to get them to the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, what a thought. They will not seek. They must be sought. They will not learn. They must be taught. They will not come, they must be brought. That's our responsibility, Christians. God put us in a world. He put His Holy Spirit within us. He put His light within us. And there are people that need us to help them to get to Jesus. Man, our churches have forgotten that. We have so forgotten that. We've turned inward, and everything we do, if we're not careful, 
is to help each other out and to, you know, edify the brethren. And that is so important. We do that. We do a good, we do a better job of that here than we do the other. But there are people and they're depending on you and on me to get to Jesus. And if we don't help them, God forbid, they may never get there. The second thing I see in this is there was a crowd standing between them and Jesus. There was a crowd standing between these four men and the man on the bed, the paralyzed man. There was a crowd between them and Jesus, verse number 19. Now, they were blocked out physically. They just couldn't get to where Jesus could see him and heal him. They were physically blocked from getting to Jesus. Of course, that's not true today because Jesus is not physically present with us. But I can tell you the crowd is still standing between unsaved people and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what I mean by that. I mean that we think about other people and what they are going to think of us if we get to Jesus. We call it peer pressure. And so many Christians are absolutely paralyzed in their Christian life by, quote, peer pressure. I see this especially among our teenagers. It, it really distresses me. There's been a change with young people. Uh, it's always been like that, but, boy, it's, it's, it's increased through the years. And your teenager, for the most part, unless they're exceptional, you know what they think about life? They think exactly what their peer group thinks about life. And I've watched our kids. I've even watched our kids here at, at, at the school. And I say this lovingly, but there's missing that element of individualism where I'll step out and think for myself and do what I want to do. And it's always just looking around at the peer group. What are they going to think? It keeps so many young people from serving the Lord. It is such a powerful pressure upon them. But hey, it's not just the young people. We see it with our young people. They, they don't hide it as well as adults do. But so many adults today, the crowd stands between them and Jesus. What will somebody think if I really surrendered my life to the Lord and lived all out for Him, if I got all in for Jesus, what would the crowd think of me? I'd lose some friends. Yes, you would. I'll tell you that right up front. There's some friends you have you'd be better off without maybe because they're keeping you from being what God wants you to be. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25 is a verse worthy of some marking in your Bible, I can tell you. It says, the fear of man bringeth a snare. The fear of man bringeth a snare. And you see this, and you especially see it, you know, I've, I've, I've often said through the years to our staff and to people that I was conversing with, you see that more in small cities and small towns like Florence than you do big cities because we rub shoulders with people more often. And the peer pressure, the, the, what people think of us becomes very, very important to us. And of course, we, we don't want to be offensive, but the other side of that is we never want to let the crowd, the peer group, the people around us, 
ever keep us from being obedient to what the Lord wants us to do. Now, I can tell you how to overcome that. I can tell you how to overcome that. You overcome it in this way. When you get to the point that your love and your loyalty to Jesus Christ is greater than your concern for what people think, then you'll be free of that. The crowd, you can, you can go through the crowd then. When you get to where your love for Christ and your loyalty for the Lord Jesus Christ is greater than your concern about what the crowd thinks, then the crowd loses its power over you. I've, uh, I've had to experience this myself. When I came from Florence, or when I came to Florence 50 years ago and started the church, I was the outsider. And through the years, I've taken positions that weren't very popular. And you know what? I'm still pretty much the outsider. And you know, I had to come to a point. Do I want to please everybody in the community and them say, Bill's a good guy? Or am I going to be absolutely loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ? And I've tried to do that one. I care what people think about me. I do not want to be controlled by what anybody thinks about me. Not the tithers in the church, not the deacons in the church, not the people in the community. I want to bow down before my Savior one day and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. You were loyal to me first, last, and always. And don't you want that in your life? I'm sure you do. I hope your goals are the same as mine. And, and, and let, let's just stop here and park for a minute. Um, I, I, in all possibility, I'm, I'm speaking to someone who the, the crowd, your friends, your peer group, your neighbors, your family, is keeping you from being what God wants you to be. Now, I ask you to think about that, and I implore you to, to act on that. Don't let anybody keep you from doing the will of God in your life. Then number three, I find something else here. I find that faith will find a way to overcome every difficulty. Faith always finds a way to overcome the difficulties and obstacles we have in life. Here's what these four guys are thinking. You know they were. They had to be thinking, man, that crowd is in the way. If we can just get him to Jesus, Jesus is going to heal our friend. Our only problem is we got to get him to Jesus, whatever it takes. We've got to overcome the difficulties. And so this man, if you will notice here, is actually healed because of the faith of his friends. It, it, it doesn't even mention his faith. His, his faith is irrelevant at this point. It's the faith of his friends who say, whatever it takes, we're going to get him to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, real friends, real friends, they are willing to go to extreme measures to get you to the Lord, uh, to, to, uh, to get real friends are willing to go to extreme measures to help people get to the Lord Jesus Christ. So I guess they had a little conference. They're carrying him up there on his bed, and they walk up in the crowds around the Lord Jesus, and they try to figure every way in the world, scratching their heads, how are we going to get him to the Lord? We've got to get him there. They're desperate. They're urgent. And one of them says, 
well, we're not going to get him through there, but let's, let's, think, let's just have a little huddle here, do a little planning, and a little creativity came in there. And somebody said, well, let's carry him up the staircase on the outside of the house here. Let's take him up to the roof, and we'll just pick up some of those clay tiles. We'll let him right down in front of Jesus. Jesus won't be able to miss him then. And uh, I know the Lord will help him. And so they planned, and they labored, and they persevered, and they were determined, and they were diligent. They cooperated together, one man on each corner of the cot with a rope. And guess what? They let him down, and the Savior was right there, and he healed him just as they had just as they had desired. Look in verse number 20 and see something here. When Jesus saw their faith, they're referring to who? The man and his friends. When Jesus saw their faith collectively, he healed the man. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 29 is a great, great verse. Think about it in relation to this. According to your faith, be it unto you. According to your faith, be it unto you. If you have the faith and you'll exercise and act on that faith, then according to that faith, so it will be to you. You know, God honors faith. God honors faith above every other quality of the Christian life. We're saved by faith. We know that. We're kept by faith. Faith is the great thing. Faith that moves the mountains, uh, at least symbolically and spiritually speaking. Faith, God honors faith. But have you ever thought why God honors faith? Why doesn't God honor something else? I'll tell you why. God honors faith because faith honors God. God honors faith because faith honors Him. And so when I, when I hear His Word and I believe His Word, I know about Him as these men did, and I act on His Word, then I have honored Him. It's as if I'm saying, Lord, I, I believe you. I, I trust you. Lord, I know you'll come through on whatever you have promised me. Lord, I'm not going to listen to all the noise around me. Your word says this, and I'm taking that to the bank with me. I'm going to act on it. And when you do, God is obligated through his integrity. He has to keep his word. Faith honors him. It expresses trust in him like no other Christian virtue. George Mueller said this. You know, he was the man that had the orphanages in England 150 years ago, back in the middle 1800s. And, and Mueller had 2,000 orphan children that he cared for in several uh, orphan homes. And he had to feed them every day. He had to clothe them. He had to send them to school. He had to care for them like a father would one or two children. Only had 2,000 of them. 
He also never one time asked anybody publicly for a penny of money. He would simply pray, and the Lord sent in the supply. It's a most wonderful story of modern-day prayer history, if you will. And George Mueller, people ask him about his prayers and about his faith. And here's what he said. He said, problems are the food of faith. Now, put that down. Don't forget that. Write that in your Bible there somewhere. Problems are the food of faith. When I have a problem, I go to the Lord. He solves it, and it feeds my faith. It is the thing my faith feeds. It's the old idea. If I never had a problem, I'd never know that he could solve them. I'd never know what God could do. Problems, the challenges of our life are the things that feed our faith if we act upon those things. So the man here is a picture of a sinner, helpless, cannot do one thing to save himself. There's a crowd standing between the four men carrying him on his cot and the Lord Jesus Christ. But their faith finds a way, and it overcomes the difficulties and they find a way to get him to Jesus, and he's healed. And the fourth and last thing I would call your attention to is what a difference Jesus can make in a life. What a difference Jesus can make in a life. Look in verse number 25. Immediately he rose up before them. He took up that whereon he lay, his cot, and he departed to his own house glorifying God. They were all amazed, and they all glorified God and were filled with fear, saying, boy, we've seen some strange things today. But just think of this old boy that's been paralyzed. Has he been here all his life? We don't know. Did he suffer from an accident, and he's a quadriplegic now? We, we don't know all the details. We can only imagine. But here's a man who can do nothing for himself, and four friends get him to Jesus, and this man then, his life has changed from that day on forevermore simply because he met the Lord Jesus Christ. Stop a minute. Don't just sit here in the habit of coming to church and worshiping. Think with me and apply this to your heart, friend. Think of how different your life would be without Jesus Christ. What a difference Jesus makes. We say that. And boy, my friend today, if he hasn't made a difference in your life, you need another, you need a trip to Calvary. Because Jesus Christ, well, I, I've, I was thinking as I prepared this, and I wondered, where would I be if I had not followed the Lord Jesus Christ in my life? What a difference. I mean, Here's the problem. We're in the Bible Belt still, little vestiges of it left, a lot of it maybe in Florence. Here's the problem. We get this thing all confused. Well, I've got to be a good boy, and I've got to go to church, and I've got to live a certain way and all that stuff. And, and, and it becomes a lifestyle. We forget, wait a minute, why are we doing all this stuff? And if it weren't for Jesus Christ... I can't imagine where I would be and what my life would be like this morning. My whole view of life is shaped by Jesus Christ. My values 
are shaped by Jesus Christ. The future, what I'm looking forward to, as an, as an elderly man, what am I looking forward to? Well, man, I'm not looking to just a hole in the ground. I'm looking to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. My whole view is there now. If Jesus Christ had not come, I'd never know that God loves me. I could read it in a book, but I wouldn't experience it. I wouldn't feel it. But the Bible says, greater love hath no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. There's nobody to Florence Baptist Temple probably with, if a situation were to arise, who would give their life for me. Nobody I've ever met would die and give up their life for me or you. But Jesus Christ went to the cross and suffered a horrible death. I never know the depth of God's love and the breadth of God's love if it hadn't been for Jesus Christ doing that for me. I wouldn't have any way to obtain forgiveness of sins. How are you going to get your conscience clear? How are you going to get your soul clean? How are you going to know that your sins have been forgiven if, it, if Jesus Christ hadn't come? You're going to stand out under a tree or get on your knees in a closet somewhere and say, Lord, forgive me 10,000 times or whoever you are, forgive me. But with Jesus Christ, I go to him. He told me how to do that. If I confess my sins, he is faithful and just to forgive me of my sins. And he'll cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And I can get down on my knees and confess my sins. And I can get up and have perfect peace. My conscience is clear. He's forgiven me. I would, have, I would not have any hope beyond the grave. How many hundred times have I gone out here to the cemetery and walked ahead of the casket of one of my beloved church members, somebody many times a very close personal friend, and I've gone out there and read from a book and said a prayer, believing that book and believing that God would hear us and that someday the skies would open and the resurrection was going to occur and I'd see them again. Take Jesus Christ out. I don't have that. I just have a black hole in the ground to put people in for their body to rot and never see them again. I wouldn't have anybody if Jesus hadn't have come to pat pattern my life after my daddy was a good man, but he was a flawed man. The best men in our church are good men, but they're flawed men. They're broken men. They're fallen men. But I can look to him. How would he act in a given situation? And I can look to him, and I know how I'm supposed to act. He's my role model. He's my pattern. I would have nobody if Jesus hadn't come to calm my fears. Man, we're living at a time of fear. I've never seen anything like it. And we're reminded every day to be more fearful by the media. You know what? I can honestly say I'm concerned, but I haven't missed one night, one minute of sleep over COVID. 
I have a peace in my heart, a peace that the world can't give me. I have joy in my heart. I mean, I'm not a clown going around laughing all the time, you know. But I have a deep-seated joy like a fountain. And you know what? I know this. No matter what happens, no matter what happens, he's in control. All things are working together for good to those that love him. And I do love him. And so with all my blemishes and warts and imperfections, I love him. And I know that everything is not going to be all right. Everything is already all right because of Jesus. What a difference he's made. He's the light in a world that is so dark. Tonight, I'm going to tell you how dark it is. It's darker than you know. And when I was confronted with something this week, I saw a I saw a dimension of darkness I've never seen before that's in this country right now. I'll tell you tonight about it. But even in this darkness, there's a bright light. Jesus, the light of the world. And if I'll keep my eye on him, he'll guide me home, and he'll guide you home. Will you bow your head with me in prayer right now, please?